0: Often, churches flatter themselves with the title, New Testament Church. Their members are proud of the fact that they go to a New Testament church. Their pastor makes it his goal to grow New Testament believers and to build a New Testament church. You know, I once thought that I wanted to be a part of a New Testament church. Until I read Paul's New Testament letter to the church at Corinth. The Corinthian Christians were definitely a New Testament church, but they were a church fraught with problems. Theirs was a divided church, so much so that members were suing each other in the pagan courts. Blatant immorality was tolerated in this church. The God-given roles of male and female were being ignored. Communion had become an excuse for gluttony. Spiritual gifts were being abused. Foundational truths like the resurrection were being questioned, and perhaps worst of all, love had taken a back seat. See, I want our church to embrace New Testament doctrine and experience New Testament expansion and enjoy New Testament fellowship and exhibit New Testament charity. Certainly, we want to exude New Testament power. But if being a New Testament church means following the example of the church in Corinth, then forget it. The Corinthian church had problems that needed to be corrected. And of course, that was Paul's purpose in writing this enlightening and comprehensive letter. On his second missionary journey, Paul spent 18 months in the seaport of Corinth. You see, the Greek city and the Roman Empire had experienced a rocky courtship. In the second century BC, Corinth had revolted against Rome. The city was destroyed by the Roman general Mummius. Corinth was a pile of rubble for a hundred years. It was Julius Caesar who recognized Corinth's geographic and strategic significance and had the city rebuilt. It became the capital of the Roman province of Acacia and it grew to be a prominent commercial hub. Located 48 miles, South of Athens, Corinth city center was built on the north side of the Acro Corinthus, a 1900 foot mountain that dominated the city's skyline. Corinth is situated on an isthmus, a narrow strip of land connecting two larger land masses. And this isthmus was the bridge between the Peloponnesus Peninsula and the Greek mainland. The isthmus of Corinth is four miles wide. To the west, is the Gulf of Corinth. Eastward is the Saronic Gulf. Corinth had ports on both shores. In the 1800s, a canal was actually cut across the Isthmus so that boats could navigate from the Ionian to the Aegean Seas. But in the first century, there was no canal. Ships either had to sail around the Peloponnesus or they could be pulled across the Isthmus by slaves. The rail system used to pull these ships was an amazing feat of engineering. You can still see remnants of it even to this day. It was because Corinth sat at this crossroads that its population began to grow. In fact, at one point it swelled to 600,000 residents. Immigrants came from all over the world. Corinth was truly a cosmopolitan place. But with the influx of these people came every lewd and wicked practice known to man. Corinth was a microcosm of the Roman world, not only its politics and commerce, but its morality and spirituality as well. You see, above all, Corinth was known for its lust and its vice. The city of Corinth was spring break on steroids. Corinth was the Las Vegas of the ancient world, a real sin city. You see, Corinth was the kind of place, it was home for the kind of people that appear on the Jerry Springer show. I mean, the sickos and the wackos populated Corinth. Among her Greek neighbors, there was an expression, there was a phrase, playing the Corinthian. That was synonymous for drunkenness. A Corinthian girl was another name for a prostitute. You see, the city of Corinth had a sordid reputation. In fact, on the mountain above the city was the temple of Aphrodite, the goddess, the Greek goddess of love. And every night in Corinth, 10,000 so-called priestesses, they came from the Acro-Corinthus and they hit the street to play the prostitute. The tricks they turned raised funds for their temple. In Corinth, sexual immorality, it wasn't just tolerated. It had been institutionalized as part of a local religion. You know, it's interesting Read Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 32, Paul's graphic description of the ungodliness and unrighteousness of ancient Rome. Morally, spiritually, Rome was bankrupt. You know, currently our Supreme Court is deliberating the legality of same-sex marriage. But the practice of gay marriage is nothing new. Caesar Nero entered into two homosexual marriages. One is a bride and the other is a groom. It's a perversion as old as Rome. Read Romans chapter 1, and you'll find that the Roman world was callous and calculating in its twistedness. People knew of God's judgment, yet nothing deterred them. They deliberately sinned and encouraged others to do the same. And guess where Paul wrote his expose on evil? He was in Corinth. The city of Corinth was his inspiration. And yet, rather than be intimidated by the city's corruption, Paul saw the people, the hollowness in their eyes, the emptiness on their face. Corinth was all about pleasure. So why were so many people unhappy and unsatisfied? Paul loved these people. He knew Jesus died for these people. And that truth is what motivated Paul. Walked the Corinthian streets, and you'd rub shoulders with all kinds of folk. Jewish rabbis, Greek merchants, pagan priests, salty sailors, rugged soldiers, busy shopkeepers, weary slaves, brazen harlots, street peddlers, jugglers, con men, even aspiring athletes. Paul surveyed the kaleidoscope of lost people. And rather than wanting to get out of Dodge as fast as he could, he thought, man, what a great place to plant a church. It was in this den of sin that the Holy Spirit used Pastor Paul to plant a vibrant and spirit-filled church. It was only after Paul had left Corinth that problems developed in the church. In short, rather than the church influencing Corinth, Corinth was influenced by the church. I'm sorry, rather than, I said that wrong. This is the second time I've done this this morning. Let's try it again. Rather than the church influencing Corinth, Corinth influenced the church. Paul was in Ephesus when he had heard of these problems. And from there he pins a letter of correction. You know, it's been said, boats are made to be in the water, but you don't want water in your boat. High seas and storm-tossed seas, they're no threat to a well-built boat. I mean, ships are fabricated to stay afloat in deep water, in rough water. The danger, though, is if the water ever gets into the ship. And the same is true with the church and the world. Jesus constructed his church to survive, even thrive on storm-tossed seas, the seas of this world. He wants us to pluck drowning sailors out of the surf. He made us to be a witness. But if the world ever gets into the church, it can sink us. And this is what had happened in Corinth. Paul begins his letter in verse 1. Paul. (laughs) Today we close our letters with our signature. Ancient letters, though, began with a signature. Most correspondence was written on a scroll, and you didn't want your readers to have to unroll a long scroll just to see who the letter was from, and so you put the signature right up front. Paul. The date of this letter was 57 AD, about five years after Paul's visit to Corinth. And by this point, Paul had made quite a name for himself. John Phillips writes this of Paul. He says, people loved or loathed him, admired or despised him, imitated him fondly or ridiculed him passionately, but they could not ignore him. He had turned the world upside down. He was at once a Roman citizen, a Greek cosmopolitan, a trained Jewish rabbi. Moreover, he was as brave as a lion. All the forces of his giant intellect, his white-hot emotions, and his determined will combined to make him what he was, Paul. And apparently, Paul had two names. He also had a Hebrew name, Saul. In fact, he was known as Saul when he and Barnabas departed from Antioch and sailed for Cyprus on their first missionary journey. It was there that Saul saw his first Gentile convert. A Roman official came to know Christ. His name was Sergius Paulus. It was his first taste of a Gentile coming to know Jesus, something God had called him to pursue. And this first Gentile, on top of it all, he was named Paulus, another Paul. I think it wet Paul's appetite for more. The next stop was the Gentile's area of Galatia. And from then on in the book of Acts, Saul goes by Paul. He jettisons his Hebrew handle and he goes by his great Greek name. And I think it was his way of saying, hey, my Jewishness is now over, my legalism is past. I'm now reaching out to the Gentiles. The gospel is grace for every race. And to display that truth loud and clear, Saul became Paul. He continues. Paul called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God. Notice, Paul didn't appoint himself. He wasn't a climber. His own ambition didn't propel him to the place of authority he occupied. No, he was an apostle of Jesus through the will of God. Paul was installed and called by the Holy Spirit. And then Paul writes, along with Sosthenes, our brother, You know, Acts chapter 18 speaks of Paul's time in Corinth. When he first arrived, he held meetings in the Jewish synagogue. But when the Jews rejected his message, he wiped the dust off his feet, and he set up shop in a house right next door to the synagogue, a private residence owned by justice. Paul started reaching out to Gentiles, to anyone and everyone in Corinth. The leader of the synagogue at the time was a man named Crispus. And I can imagine Chris wandering over in the middle of the day, asking Paul's questions, kind of picking his brain. It all led to the dude Jew's conversion. What a victory this was for Christianity. The leader of the synagogue had come to know Jesus. The gospel spread. Acts 18 tells us that many Corinthians believed. Well, back in the synagogue, Crispus was replaced by another Jewish leader. His name was Sosthenes, and this man was determined to stir up trouble for Paul in the church. Sosthenes brought Paul before the city council on grounds of sedition, plotting against Rome. His accusations, though, backfired. Gallio, the proconsul, saw through his scheme. He was upset that a local synagogue ruler was using their tribunal to foster a personal religious vendetta. Gallio dismissed the charges against Paul. And the Corinthians were so angry with Sosthenes for wasting their time for manipulating their court docket that they had him beaten instead of Paul. Now look at Paul's address to the Corinthian church. He writes, along with Sosthenes, our brother. Could it be? <laughs> Could this be the same Sosthenes? I think so. Apparently, Sosthenes concluded, if you can't beat them, you might as well join them. The Jewish community in Corinth had a hard time keeping a rabbi in charge of the synagogue. They all kept giving their lives to Jesus. Well, Paul and Sosthenes, they write, to the church of God, which is at Corinth. What a statement that makes. The church of God, which is at Corinth. Did you know there were a group of people called out from this world and called to God, living holy lives and bearing spiritual fruit in the most wicked city of the day? What a witness that was. What a testimony to the power of Jesus Christ. Paul continues to address this church. He says, To those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints. Over the centuries, the church has applied the term saint to special believers who did extraordinary acts of faith. But originally, all believers were referred to as saints. The word saint simply means to be set apart or to be dedicated. It reminds me of two brothers that stole their neighbor's sheep. They were caught and punished. They both were branded on their forehead. They were stamped with the letters "ST." Sheep thief. One brother was ashamed of his failure. He fled from town to town trying to hide his mark. But the other brother was repentant. He took responsibility for his crimes. And despite this awful stigma that he wore on his forehead, he stayed in the community. He determined to rebuild a good reputation. Years later, a newcomer to town noticed the ST on the man's forehead. And he asked a townsperson what it meant. The man replied, he said, well, I'm not sure, but but I think it means saint. (laughs) Hey, we all should live in such a way that marks us as a saint. In the classic book, Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan writes of two earnest believers in their journey through life. He calls them Christian and faithful. One day, they happen upon a fair, a carnival. Bright colors, decorations, people buying and selling. It was located in a town called Vanity. Listen to Bunyan's description of the notorious Vanity Fair. At this fair are all such merchandise sold as houses, lands, trades, places, honors, preferments, titles, countries, kingdoms, lusts, pleasures, and delights of all sorts as whores, mistresses. Wives, husbands, children, masters, servants, lives, blood, bodies, souls, silver, gold, pearls, precious stones, and what not. At this fair are seen jugglings, cheats, games, plays, fools, apes, knaves, and rogues, and that of every kind. Here too are thefts, murders, adulteries, false swears, and that of a blood red color that is hot tempered. Bunyan's Vanity Fair was meant to be a picture of our world. It's hollow. It's empty. Vanity rules in men's hearts. All manner of vice and lust and pleasure and pride have been substituted for the meaninglessness people feel. And Christian and faithful, they're called to walk through this fair. As they do, they're mocked. Their clothing is so different from the way the world is robed, they speak a different language. But what makes the locals really angry is their indifference to the wares that are being sold. They refuse to buy what Vanity Fair is selling. And John Bunyan writes this they cared not so much as to look upon them. And if they called upon them to buy, they would put their fingers in their ears and cry, turn away my eyes from beholding vanity and look upwards. Signifying their trade and traffic were in heaven. In Bunyan's story, Faithful meets his martyrdom in Vanity Fair. And Christian barely escapes with his life. It's a dangerous place. And the parallel is clear. This world is a Vanity Fair. All it offers is emptiness. And what it sells only masks what it lacks. We as faithful Christians have been called on to make up our minds that we're not buying what this world is selling. Even if our peers laugh and people mock, our trade and in traffic involves the values and joys of heaven. Our eyes are fixed on Jesus. You see, this was the challenge facing the Corinthian church, and every church, even our church. Hey, we're a boat in the water. but We can never let the water get into the boat. This is why Paul writes to the church which is at Corinth with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord, both theirs and ours. Notice, in every place. That includes Lilburn, Georgia. This letter was not only written to the Corinthians, it was written to us as well. And then verse 3 tells us, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, grace and peace are called the twins of the New Testament. And I guess this means more to me now that I have twins. Our grandkids, Luke and Kate, they're a pair. Oh, they're two years old now, and I don't think they've ever been apart for longer than a few hours. When I watch them, I imagine little thought bubbles above their heads. You know, I kind of put thoughts in their mind. I kind of imagine what they might be thinking. Like, when is your mom going to come and pick you up? Or, wow, this is the play date that never ends. I'm not saying they want to, but if they did, they can't escape each other. And neither can grace and peace. Did you know there's a twins restaurant in New York City? The eatery is owned by twins, Debbie and Lisa Gans. They employ 37 sets of twins. Each set of twins works the same shift in the same outfit. If one gets sick, both stay home. If one gets fired, both get fired. Every night, 10 to 20 sets of twins eat at their restaurant. They even have twin chandeliers. In fact, double mint gum sits on every table. Their motto reads, you can only make a first impression once, we make it twice. (laughs) Well, grace and peace are a pair that would fit nicely at the twins' restaurant. They, too, work together. You see, grace gains for us a right standing with God, and then peace is the result. Grace cooks it up, and then peace serves it up. You can't have one without the other. And there's an order here. You can't know God's peace until you have first known His grace. Well, Paul continues his greeting, verse 4. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace of God, which was given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by Him. And I love the language Paul uses here. This is what Jesus does in a life. He enriches in everything. He makes everything better. The day after I gave my life to Jesus, the air seemed fresher. The sun appeared brighter. I went about my normal activities as usual, but now with a bounce in my step and a smile on my face, life got instantly better. Everything in life was enriched. Jesus makes your marriage better. I mean, it might not be good, but it won't be as bad as it once was. He'll make it better. He makes your parenting wiser, school more tolerable, work more enjoyable. Yes, there's stuff in your life Jesus wants to eliminate. But he not only takes away, he adds to. He fills us up with good stuff. He enriches and he enhances. The Corinthians had been enriched in all utterance and in all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you so that you come short in no gift. We'll find out later that God had blessed the church at Corinth in multiple ways, but not the least of which was with a wide array of spiritual gifts. Supernatural phenomena occurred in this church. Things like healing and words of wisdom and discernment. They praised God in unknown tongues, and they can interpret what was being said. The Corinthians attended a charismatic church. That term charismatic is a compound word. Charis is the Greek for grace. Mata means gifts, which means the supernatural gifts that enriched the Corinthians were grace gifts. And I hope you know they're available to us if we'll humbly receive them by trusting in God's grace. I think some of us are living below our privileges as a Christian There's a spiritual, supernatural component to our Christian faith that some of us are missing. Christianity should be a miracle life. A life that God blesses and He infuses with power and He uses to reach others. Calvary Chapel. I believe that God has more for us than we've experienced. I do. The Holy Spirit wants to do a great and fresh work in our lives. We need to trust in His grace. And notice Paul then says that it's through these spiritual gifts that the testimony of Christ was confirmed. Miracles don't produce faith. People have seen miracles. Pharaoh saw miracles. didn't cause him to believe. Miracles don't produce faith. Faith comes by God's word. But miracles confirm our faith. It's evidence. As Mark says at the end of his gospel, these signs will follow. Spiritual gifts are the result of faith, Think of it this way. The atmosphere always holds a degree of moisture, does it not? But we realize it most when it rains. And likewise, Jesus is always among us, but his presence gets confirmed when these spiritual gifts are alive and active around us. Later in the book, we'll learn that the Corinthians were misusing and abusing the spiritual gifts But never once does Paul suggest that they stop using them. The presence of these gifts were always viewed by Paul as a positive. And we too need a positive, not a hesitant, not a reluctant, but a positive approach to the charismata. 1 Corinthians 14 verse 1 says it best, pursue love and desire spiritual gifts. Well, verse 7 speaks of our hope in the return of Jesus He says, eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ who will also confirm you to the end that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it's when our Lord returns, when He comes for His church, that will be the final confirmation of the truth of the gospel. It's the final proof that Jesus is able and His blood is sufficient to present us blameless to God into Christ Jesus and notice our posture toward the return of Christ we should be eagerly waiting not despondent not apathetic not some come say come saw attitude no we need to be eagerly waiting we need to be looking are you hoping are you longing for the day when you see Jesus i am he's coming we need to live our lives on the edge of our seat and then verse 9 Explains God's purpose in it all. He says, "...for God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of His Son, Jesus Christ our Lord." Notice why God cleanses us and saves us. So that He can sit us on a shelf and point to us from time to time? Oh, no. The reason for all of God's effort in saving us is so that we can have fellowship with Jesus Christ. He saves us to know us. You see, a Christian's ultimate purpose is not to do for Jesus or go for Jesus or grow for Jesus. Some people get themselves into a, on a treadmill thinking that this is what it's all about, doing and serving and going. No, no, no. It's about knowing Jesus. That's our purpose. That's the reason for our salvation. Our calling is for relationship. It's for fellowship, hanging out, spending time, living life with Jesus. It's for this reason that he died and that he shed his blood for us. And then in verse 10, Paul tackles the first problem that was going on in the Corinthian church. He says, Now I plead with you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all speak the same thing. And that there be no divisions among you, but that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. The church at Corinth had become fragmented. They lacked unity and harmony. There were divisions. He says, For it has been declared to me concerning you, my brethren, by those of Chloe's household, that there are contentions among you. A gal in the fellowship... Chloe, maybe one of her friends, either wrote Paul or visited, and she reported some bad news. Chloe was upset. Cliques had formed in the church. Now, understand up front, it's okay to have a church with specific distinctives. No two churches are exactly alike, nor should be. Every church has a little different flavor and emphasis and approach, and that's okay. To reach a diverse community, we need a diversity of churches. It's also okay for you to have a circle of friends at church just as long as that circle isn't closed. Our emphasis should always be about bringing people in, not keeping people out. Our circle should be an inclusive one that grows. Problems occur when church members polarize. See, it's wrong when one group thinks they're better are more spiritual than another group. Suddenly, God's family becomes a family feud. Friction drives us apart. Certainly, there are some issues worth fighting for, hills to die on. And in those issues, I'll lead the charge. But all too often, churches end up majoring on the minors and minoring on the majors. We divide and fight over petty, picky stuff, and this grieves God's spirit when christians divide over baptism oh come on oh you got sprinkle and we dunk or we take communion every week you you only take it once a quarter we read the king james paul's version you read a more pu- modern translation we sing hymns you sing praise songs organ or guitar pew or pure uh, chair robes or blue jeans pulpit Or no pulpit. We polarize over trivial stuff. I I read the true story of a man named Paul Letts. Paul took a terrible fall. He punctured a lung, broke a couple of ribs, was bleeding internally. Paul was rushed to the hospital. But while lying in the emergency room, he heard two doctors start arguing over who was going to put the tube into his crushed chest. The doctor's argument became a knockdown drag out. They began shoving each other. One of the physicians threatened to have the other one removed by a security guard. Let's cry it out, please, somebody save me. Two other doctors had to step in and settle the dispute. And all too often, this happens in the church. Hurting people, bruised people walk through our doors but we're too busy trying to outdo or upstage each other that we don't provide them the help they're looking for. And that's what was happening at the church in Corinth. Notice in verse 12, Paul describes the problem further. He says, Now I say this, that each of you says, I am of Paul, or I am of Apollos, or I am of Cephas, or I am of Christ. The believers in Corinth had divided around personalities. They gravitated to their favorite teacher. One group shouted, oh, Paul, man, he's cool. We're into Paul. He preaches liberty. You guys are all legalists. The second splinter disagreed. Oh, we like Apollos, man. He goes deep. He gets into the Greek, unlocks some profound truths. We're more intelligent than you guys. A third segment countered said, whoa, wait a minute. We follow Pentecost Pete, old Cephas. He walked on water, remember? You study the Bible if you want. We want the power of the Spirit. The final schism, they thumbed their nose at all, at all the other three. Said so we're too proud to learn from any human teacher. We take our orders from Jesus alone. How arrogant is that? But you see, Paul writes to this misguided church. He says, is Christ divided? What a ridiculous thought. You can't divide Christ. Was Paul crucified for you? Of course not. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? The answer to all the above is no. Christ isn't divided and neither should his body be fragmented and splintered. Christ died for us. We're baptized into Christ. Jesus has given us teachers. Thus, Jesus is the main thing. Our job is is to keep the main thing the main thing. Every church needs to keep its eyes on Jesus. You see, Paul is accusing the Corinthians of ripping apart the body of Christ. Imagine that. The body of Christ that died to save and to heal was being torn asunder. Once I read the story of a man who killed his wife and ran her body through a wood chipper to destroy the evidence. Terrible thought. So I hope it's a terrible thought for you. And as repulsive as that might sound, this is what the Corinthians had done to the body of Christ. They got a little chippy toward one another. And instead of focusing on their many and marvelous commonalities, they allowed their very few differences to split them and drive them apart. Here's the lesson for us. Don't be attracted to personalities. Pastors shouldn't foster for themselves a celebrity status. And we members shouldn't turn our pastors, mere servants of God, into some celebrity. Teachers in the body of Christ sent from Christ are to point us to Christ. Jesus is the rallying point, not the teacher. Jesus is the commonality that's greater than our differences. Focus on Jesus and we'll stay united. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3, Paul challenges us, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. See, it's the Holy Spirit that creates our unity. I look around at our group on Sunday mornings, and I'm astonished. We're so diverse. I tell people, man, the only way you could get this group of people together without a fight breaking out is through the power of Jesus Christ. The Spirit of Christ produces our unity, but then it's up to us to work at keeping it and not doing stupid, silly stuff that would undermine and sabotage our precious unity. There's a poem by Edwin Markham that speaks of this endeavoring. He drew a circle that shut me out, heretic, rebel, a thing to flout. But love and I had the will to win. We drew a circle that took him in. Let's not let stupid stuff separate us. Let's endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. Let's work and try to breed harmony and unity in our church. And then in verse 14, Paul writes, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, lest anyone should say that I had baptized in my own name. I mean, he's responding to their silly divisions. Some of the Corinthians were saying that they were baptized by Paul and That made them special. It gave them a unique spiritual birthright. Paul says, not so. Every believer is baptized into Christ in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Not in the name of some specific leader or denomination or church. When we baptize, we are baptizing for Christ's sake. You're not baptized just into this church specifically, but into the church corporately. When we take communion, this isn't just the Calvary Chapel table. It's the Lord's table. Paul doesn't know how any of the believers claim to be baptized in the name of Paul. He had deliberately avoided baptizing people just to avoid this controversy. He said, lest anyone say he was baptized in my name. Of the thousands of of the new converts in Corinth, Paul had only baptized Crispus and Gaius. And when he thought about it further, he adds in verse 16, Well, yes, I also baptized the household of Stephanus. Besides, I do not know whether I baptized any other. In other words, Paul had lost track of who and how many people he had baptized. Oh, and this gives me great hope. It's so embarrassing when I ask a person if they've ever been baptized, and they come back and say, Well, of course, Pastor Sandy, you're the one that baptized me. It's just good to know that happened to the Apostle Paul too. When in Corinth, Paul had baptized only a couple of people, apparently he suspected that people might try to use the specifics of their baptism as a badge of their own betterment. Paul writes in verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. Notice Paul makes a distinction between baptism and the gospel in his mind they were separate issues this is why he didn't worry about who and how many people he had baptized he knew that baptism was a first step in a person's obedience it might jump start their spiritual growth but it certainly wasn't essential for their salvation you remember the thief on the cross wasn't baptized yet jesus told him you'll be with me in paradise person is saved by faith, and faith alone. There are Christian denominations like the Church of Christ that teach the necessity of water baptism, that if you haven't been dumped, you haven't been saved. But that wasn't true. If it were true, it's hard to imagine Paul being so cavalier, so nonchalant about the subject. He's saying, I didn't focus on baptism. I came to preach the gospel. John chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 tell us, That not even Jesus baptized his own followers. The 12 disciples handled the duties. Baptism is important. In the early church, a believer in Jesus wasn't taken seriously by the church or by the opposition until he or she had been baptized. Baptism was seen as the line in the sand. Once you'd crossed over, then everyone knew your faith was real, you were serious never forget the story about a Texas pastor. His name was Jim Dennison. He served as a missionary in East Malaysia. And there he witnessed a baptism. A teenage girl had given her life to Jesus and had stepped forward to be baptized. During the service, Jim noticed a worn-out suitcase leaning against the wall. He asked the pastor about the luggage. The pastor pointed to the girl being baptized, and then he explained, her father told her, That if she became a Christian, she could never go home again. And so she brought her luggage. Hey, I'm not saying baptism isn't important. It is. But it's my response to the gospel. Not an ingredient of the gospel. It's significant, yes. But it's not essential. Paul says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And next Sunday, we're going to examine the message that Paul preached.